the Awardist, the podcast from Entertainment Weekly that takes you inside this year's Emmy race with interviews, analysis, and more. Hi, I am Sarah Rodman, Executive Editor at Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly. And we are back in our BS to talk about the Emmys some more. This week, we are talking about two of our favorite, funniest men in comedy. First, we are going to have a chat with Andre Brower, who you better all know and love. <laughs> right, that Kristen? Is cor- that is correct. I mean, it's not like he hasn't been killing it on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the last seven seasons, but he's also Andre Brower and has been killing it as an actor for decades. Homicide, the Kojak movies. I know those are a favorite of yours, Sarah. And men of a certain age. Men of a certain age. Now on HBO Max. Now on HBO Max. So we're so excited. And it's interesting, Kristen, uh, usually when someone is nominated sort of this far into the run of a show, the show itself sort of keeps getting nominated too. So Andre is an outlier in this respect. He has been nominated for this role before, but what, what, what do you think it was about this year that clinched the nomination again? It's really interesting. We talked a little bit about this, but yeah, I mean, he's uh, been nominated. Last time he was nominated was uh, 2016 for supporting actor in a comedy. And so for four years to go by, here's what I think. I think in part, it was he had a really strong season. There were some great episodes, which we talk about. But I also think there was definitely, you know, there were some uh, retirements in the comedy category, like Veep, for example. Uh, You know, Veep going away opens up some slots in the uh, supporting actor category for sure. And then I also think, and, you know, I don't in any way mean this in, in a way to diminish, but I think also there's there was a real focus on the part of the voters to pay a little more attention to the diversity of their nominees. And, you mm. know, Andre Brower is freaking hilarious and has been for years. And it's nice that maybe all of these factors combined, perhaps got voters to give him another look. Yes, exactly. And uh, it was such a good season and such a remarkable thing for a show that's been on for as long as it has. But I think it was revitalized yes. by its move from Fox to NBC. Definitely. And it's one of the shows that um, I feel like it would be good for us to recommend people to start watching uh, in this time of us still sort of being at home a lot. I mean, that's a that's a good point, too, in that like it is one that People have been binging from the beginning in terms of like whether you love the show and you've been watching it, people rewatch it a lot. But now is a time when it's kind of very warm hearted and silly and the goodwill of the characters toward each other. It's very affirming at a time when we're we're, you know, all feeling very stressed out. So I bet a lot of people are, you know, binging it on Hulu or wherever they're they choose to binge. And so that could be another reason that he was recognized uh, this year. Whatever the reason, Sarah, I'm just happy because exactly. You know, talked about this before every year we're like andre brower andre brower so much andre brower like in everything i'm not sure like from glory until this moment yes and we were discussing yesterday too if you have not seen andre brower in a behind the scenes clip sitting in hold's office singing along to dreams by fleetwood mac and like he knows all (laughs) the words he apparently really loves stevie nicks He's like dressed like Captain Holt. It's really enjoyable. It's like a one minute pick me up. So go out there and find this clip. 
you will enjoy it. Uh, speaking of enjoyable things and Emmy nominations, Saturday Night Live historically continues to break its own record for the right. number of nominations for a show this year. It has not disappointed in both the supporting actor and actress categories and the guest actor and actress categories. And we were lucky enough to speak to Keenan Thompson who has been nominated four times. He's somebody I've been trying to interview for a really long time, so I I felt particularly uh, vindicated to finally get to speak to him. He has won an Emmy previously for uh, music and lyrics for an original song that he wrote with Chris Redd and Chance the Rapper. I believe it was called Last Christmas, not to be confused (laughs) with the George Michael song, but it was like a boy-man kind of number. And he is nominated for Supporting Actor this time. And he really is part of this great lineage of Saturday Night Live actors getting this recognition. But in his case, he has been on the show for 17 years. He is the longest serving member of the Not Ready for Primetime Players ever. It really is incredible. And he was a kid when he started, Kristen. Like he, he had not been off all that and Keenan and Cal and all of that Nickelodeon stuff for very long before he started this. And now you can't even really imagine a season without him. You know, they used to talk about uh, Phil Hartman being the glue as -hmm. somebody you could plug into any sketch and he would elevate it. He would be somebody you'd always be happy. Even if sketch doesn't work, you know, he would bring something to it that only he could. And I feel that way about Keenan now. Absolutely. He is the ultimate utility player. He can be the funny guy. He can be the straight guy. But no matter what he's doing and Phil's, who is my favorite SNL cast member of all time, God rest his soul, I think that he would look favorably on Keenan's utility. So it was a lot of fun to talk to him. And he's also really excited for his other castmates. And I did ask him, I had to ask him if he was annoyed that Brad Pitt could show up for five minutes and play Fauci and get nominated for Emmy. In a wig and play Fauci. (laughs) I mean, I look forward to hearing that answer because, I mean, that was what Brad Pitt could do for our country at this moment is, you know, like show his beautiful face and do something a little silly from his home and give Fauci the sort of honor and uh, tribute that he deserves in these troubling times. Right, we (laughs) salute him for his service. Keenan was very gracious in his answer. So we will tee these up. We are excited to bring to you this week. First up, a chat with Captain Raymond Holt himself, Andre Brower. Thank you so much for doing this and congratulations on your 11th nomination um given that your last nomination for playing raymond holt was four years ago were you surprised on emmy morning when they uh nominated you again or yeah i was surprised because uh usually when you fall out of that group uh you you stay out you know right it's not that people don't appreciate your work. It's just that new shows come along. They're exciting. That are fresh. That are typically on the upswing. And yeah. so, you know, I, I get uh, where that's coming from. So I was surprised, but life is just full of surprises. So uh, <laughs> it certainly is, especially this year, right? Yeah. So you know, a lot happened for Holt this season. He, you know, he was working as a beat cop. He had to eulogize his nemesis, Madeline Wunsch. Uh, he learned Russian and some '80s dance moves. Uh, what was your favorite development for him in season seven? I would say getting off of the beat was a uh, valuable and humbling lesson for Raymond Holt. Right. But he's much better suited in the office than he is uh, on the street. I learned a lot of lessons from them, and they learned a lot of lessons from me. 
It was good to have um, an episode with my husband, Kevin, and Cheddar the dog, which was good. I got a chance to do a climactic fight in the street, you know, and an extended sort of um, (laughs) street fight, which is very interesting, and ride on top of a car. Generally, we had a good time this season. You know, the writing has remained strong seven years on. Dan Gore is still uh, heading the writing room. In another world, the show would have been turned over to someone else, an associate right. or something, and it, it would have been in a nosedive by now. But because of Dan's uh, involvement, his uh, commitment to the show, we're still on the air coming on eight years now. I know. And it's, you know, as uh, one of the fans who was very sad for the like eight hours that the show was canceled right. uh, before <laughs> it was picked up by Fox, it's it just every episode feels you know, like you just remember how much you value it, you know, because we almost we almost lost it for a little bit. Yeah, we did. I was uh, asleep during the whole during the whole loss of the show. You know, I said <laughs> it was over and then it got picked up. And I was like, hey, it just, you know, it, it happened all while I was asleep. And I was like, it's seamless, right? Fox, <laughs> NBC. Yeah, you didn't even have to go through any of the trauma of no, being canceled. No. no trauma. I was never canceled. So. <laughs> So you mentioned, of course, one of the biggest episodes for Holt this year was Ransom, um, when he and Jake have to catch the some bitch who kidnapped Holt's fluffy boy, mm-hmm. Cheddar. When you first read that script, like, what was your reaction to the story? I mean, as a fan, I love Cheddar. I don't know what, as an actor, if Cheddar-heavy episodes are fun to do or, or what. Cheddar's a dog, there's no doubt. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think the story was a lot more fun, I think, than sometimes filming it. But, um, you know, people really respond to the Raymond Hope character, his love for Cheddar, his belief that Cheddar is almost human, you know. <laughs> Cheddar's involvement in every heist. Yes. Raymond Holt, who is still an automaton, has a soft side. <laughs> and uh, people are still excited about that. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Holt's usually so composed, but in this episode, he kind of got to go a little Rambo. How did you as a performer decide, like, what sort of out of control or Rambo-esque Holt would be and how he would act since he's usually so composed? Well, the old Holt, the what we call the young Holt, was um, a real badass, a super detective, you know, tough talking great lines and comebacks and that sort of stuff. And so I always channeled the the young Holt when it comes time to do stuff like that, because he was just a police badass, a detective who worked in unorthodox ways, you know what I mean? <laughs> was willing to do almost anything to get his man. And so I, I continue to channel that young Holt, who's, um, you know, a fascinating part of the character. Right. And, you know, that episode also Holt makes reference to a movie that was made about him when he was the young badass character. And we don't know whether it's Passenger 57 or maybe Lethal Weapon. Do you have an idea of what you think it is? (laughs) No, I mean, only the writers can tell me what it is. (laughs) It feels like it's Lethal Weapon-ish, you know. And you mentioned the fight scene, which is amazing in the street. It looked like an intricate and tough sequence of choreography to learn. Can you tell us about, like getting that down and filming that whole sequence, what that was like. Well, we had really terrific uh, stunt coordinator who's, I guess he's won two, maybe three Emmys uh, yeah. for this show. So he he laid out the fight. He has excellent stunt doubles. He laid out the fight for, for me in intimate detail, what I'm working with, what I'm capable of doing, what I'm comfortable with. And then we ran through the entire thing, and then I filmed the entire thing, and I went home and studied it. 
so that I could get the flow. Okay. And basically he made it, he made it super simple for me to go through that. And I've had that sort of stunt fighting instruction during the course of my career. So I was familiar with what he's talking about. I understood the language, you know, how to keep us both safe. And I had a great stunt double, too, because he made me look really good, uh, (laughs) leaping on top of cars and such. So he was the one who leapt on top of the car? Yes, he leapt on top of the car. (laughs) I rode on top. I screamed, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. But but, uh, he did the dirty work. He did the actual leaping. And was this, I know we mentioned the dog, but was this Stella, Stuart's sister, or which? which... This was Stella. Stuart Stuart passed away. Yeah, so this was Stella. Yeah. And uh, if you had to describe Stella as a performer, uh, how would you describe her? Uh, glacial. <laughs> She's slow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not always a, a snappy time on set when, when you're shooting with Stella. Well, you know, it's that, that old saw about children and dogs. You know what I mean? It's like they're dogs, you know? So <laughs> she's very good at coming, right? When you... When you hold a treat out, you know what I mean? And she's across right. the room and you say, Stella, come. She can really, really, she's got that down. So, <laughs> Other things she maybe has to work on. Right. Because she's a dog. Yeah. So another, you know, great Holt moment this season. Um, you got to bust loose in the finale because uh, Terry and Holt are trapped in the elevator. Mm-hmm. Terry teaches him some 80s hip hop dance moves. I'm wondering what was the hardest move to learn? Was it the, quote, pelvic pump or the spank that bottom? They, they weren't hard. I mean, I have access to the 80s, you know, um, <laughs> since I was there. Yeah. I would have to say, basically, for a 58-year-old man, I would have to say oxygen. Oxygen <laughs> deprivation was the the main barrier. So we did it. I thought I was going to pass out. We did it several times, you know, in the in the observation room there. Right. And, um, you know, Terry's a real champ. You know what I mean? He just, he, he stood in there with me. But I swear to God, I mean, I thought I was going to pass out, you know, because we danced and danced and danced. But it was a good time. And I was really happy to see the whole Peralta Santiago baby, the arrival of McLean, you know, so it was a a good episode. And it's funny how Dan has not sort of gone through the same pattern of development that other shows have. Right. You know, he's put a lot of thought into making sure that their relationship, its development and its consummation, its twists and turns are not the same as every other show that we've gone through, that that uh, every other great relationship we've seen. It's true. And it, you know, it's tricky when characters, especially, you know, will they, won't they characters when they get together, it can be very hard, but it, you know, for a show to maintain the same type of appeal, you know, for fans, but people really love to see them together. And I thought it was very sweet that Holt, even though he never wanted anyone to know that he learned the dance moves when he knew that Santiago needed him in the delivery room, he decided to uh, reveal his, his dark secret and bust some moves. Well, we're a terrific little family now. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sweet. So last year, late last year, you joined Twitter and people were very excited. And there was a great clip of you singing uh, along with Stevie Nicks on set. What do you, do you like being on social media? I know the Brooklyn fans are a very active and vocal group. I don't uh, tweet very often. Uh, typically, it's tweeting and congratulations to either my fellow cast members or organizations that I support, uh, you know, on their development. I've always been a very private person. So, 
there's not a lot of um, personal content on either the Twitter or the Instagram. It still feels like it's more commercial than it is uh, personal. But that's the way it is. I was born too early to really appreciate social media in the same way. Was it sort of something that someone suggested you do or uh, what, what drove that well, decision? I, I was browbeat into it, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's okay. You know, um, it turned out to be a good experience. There are a lot of great people on Twitter. I have a Twitter account in which I lurk, you know, and I follow oh, okay. people who are of interest to me. Not so much on Instagram. I think I just respond more to the text based people's ideas, right. their experiences, that sort of stuff. So uh, Instagram is not as exciting for me, but uh, Twitter is still exciting. You get an opportunity to meet people that you never would have met uh, in the course of a lifetime. And it's really exciting. It's true. Yeah. Now, I know this was from last season, but it's important for me to ask you, um, there was maybe nothing funnier in 2019 than Holt saying, clearly, the pineapple is the slut, the T-shirt that he wore on the honeymoon. And I'm wondering if, uh, do you ever break when you say stuff like that on the show? Are you ever somebody who who uh, breaks character or are you just unflappable? I used to not break character. I used to pride myself on not doing it, but that sort of wore out after three or four seasons. You know, uh, we just have a terrifically funny cast and they do uh, amazingly interesting things. And and the lines are crazy sometimes, you know. So I break on occasion. But even when you go back to that episode, I mean, Dan and the writers really developed a very interesting, specific sort of like uh, pathology for, for, for Holt, you know what I mean? And in order to get him back to the squad room, the, the hijinks that uh, Santiago <laughs> and Peralta had to go through. But um, I, I, I continue to like the writing on this show. I've been on so many television shows and I watch every episode very carefully because one episode always marks the peak and then there's invariably a dip right. with the next episode. And if that dip continues, then I know that the show is on its last legs, you know. So, right. so I watch the scripts and study them quite intimately, trying to figure out whether or not we're still alive or we're, we're dead. And the writing has held up. It's it's always been the foundation of this comedy yeah. that the writing is so smart. So as uh, long as the writing holds up and Andy wants to do the show, yeah, <laughs> you know, we're in a good place. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that's so nice about the show, too, is it's always been a really progressive and inclusive show and not in a way where it feels preachy or very special episode-y. It's just like the people, the characters are in that way, you know, that that's just how they live their lives. Was that something you were sort of aware of from the beginning? Or do you feel like that evolved as the show went on? Well, it was promised to me that that's the, the sort of show that it would be, you know what I mean? Because I play cops, my cops are lawyers or, you know, criminal justice professionals of some kind. Right. Um, uh, sea captains and, you know, <laughs> you know, I've just done it. <laughs> I've got a lot of authority figures. And um <laughs> You know, it was promised to me that this would be a show that would acknowledge the world as it as it is, that we would hold the, the mirror up to life with this show. People are hungry for a show that acknowledges the world as it is, as opposed to, and, and we're still talking about a comedy, but yeah. uh, one that acknowledges the world more as it is than a world of, you know, fantasy or propaganda, you know? Right. And now we're going into a, an eighth season with a new challenge, which is that, you know, uh, everyone's knowledge and feelings about police and police force have been profoundly affected. Right. You know, what we have from Dan is a commitment to write a smart show that will not attempt to uh, hide itself in a fantasy. 
Right. So the 9-9 is going to have to deal with what we know about the New York Police Department and how exactly that's going to be dealt with in in what intimate detail that is. I leave it to the writers. Right. I have a tremendous amount of confidence in them that we're going to deal with this in a smart and funny way that acknowledges the world as it is. But, you know, what that what those scripts are going to be like, what the stories in particular are going to be, I, I couldn't tell you. Right. Yeah, even whether, when or whether we're going to be filming this year, I can't tell you that either because California's in a, you know, it's just cooling down from a massive outbreak. So we'll take it, you know, one day at a time. Well, and it's interesting, I was going to ask you, I mean, you've obviously played many police officers, you've played cops on two iconic cop shows, you know, very different, Homicide and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and then you've played cops in other shows and you've played criminals. Like with this discussion of how police and criminals are portrayed on TV, have you thought about, are there changes that you know you'd like to see, not necessarily with Brooklyn, but just in general of how, you know, police are portrayed? Well, it's a very complicated subject, but I think they have to be portrayed much more realistically. And um, in, in terms of this, you know, the convention in police shows of police breaking the law and that being a good thing, right. that police breaking the law is okay because somehow it's in the service of some greater good is a myth that needs to be destroyed. Right. That and uh, the worth of the victim, who is typically the victim, why and how they're protected is an important discussion to have. The super class of citizenship, you know, that police have, you know, in the form of uh, limited immunity, you know, right. from prosecution. You know, a lot of these things um, have to be challenged. The fact that you can't fire cops, the power of the police union, the lack of civilian authority and control over the police department, all of these things have to be dealt with. And I don't think it's really a, a matter of training. It's really a matter of enforcing the law. Right. So that's what I mean about that super class of citizenship. You know, there are 350 million Americans and who have one class of citizenship, you know, enshrined by the Constitution. And then there's been created a superclass of citizenship, and it's dangerous. Right. In its own way, it's uh, one more step toward the police state. Right, exactly. And it is interesting that, you know, networks and studios are now starting to talk about, because the police procedural and police shows are so still such a, you know, popular genre, they are starting to talk about how they're going to do better, but it's it remains to be seen what is better? How do you do it and still be entertaining without being irresponsible? You know, it's complicated, like you said. Yeah. I mean, some shows are going to look deeply and try to figure out how they're going to tell these uh, stories. And some some shows are going to blow right past it. And it might be a B storyline in episode 15 or 16, you know, right. because typically people who are writing these stories and are committed to them also know that their audience in particular doesn't care about the reformation of the police departments across the right. across the nation. So some shows are going to be profoundly changed by it. And I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine is one of those that is right. going to wholeheartedly make the attempt. Some shows are going to give it lip service and, uh, and then keep talking. Now, you know, just back to the silliness of Brooklyn, which can be so delightful. Do you have a favorite joke from this year? I was just rewatching an episode where Holt says that any any philosopher past Rousseau is essentially a magazine. <laughs> you, know? you know, we've done 140 episodes. I, I can I can barely remember what happened last episode. So yeah. I have to apologize. Um, That's fine. 
On a broader note, though, you know, fans also love the cold opens. um, Mm -hmm. And I think my favorite is probably Backstreet Boys. I want it that way. I don't know if you've. Yeah, that and the full bullpen is a great one. Diane Weist (laughs) is a great one. Yeah, those are some of my favorites. There's one with where Raymond thinks that Santiago's left a bomb on his right. desk. That's a good one. Yeah. Like you mentioned with the writing, like it just keeps being these cold opens don't repeat themselves. They keep being great, you know, 140 episodes in. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like 140. I mean, we've been at it for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I'm not sure if this has been downtime for you, you know, or if you've been doing any working, but we're asking everyone we speak to, are you, is there anything you've watched recently or binged any new shows that you enjoyed in your quarantine time? I have to confess, I haven't seen, I haven't watched television in in months. Are you doing something Raymond Holt-like, like reading books? Well, you know, it's, it's, I do, I do enjoy reading. It's funny, you know, I want to be with my army out there in the field making films and television, you know, um, it's it's where I feel most sort of alive and vital, you know what I mean? Uh, professionally, that is, you know, uh, artistically. It's funny, I mean, it's all shut down. That whole thing is shut down. People are doing podcasts and sort of readings online and these different sort of things. And we still uh, entertain hopes that, you know, the theater will be open this year. I I don't know. I got my fingers crossed, but that's a tricky one. Back in March, um, I was doing uh, a play called uh, Birthday Candles, uh, starring Deborah Messing um, Mm -hmm. at the Roundabout. And we got all of two weeks into rehearsal and we just had to close down because no, there were no tests. No one was certain whether the workplace was safe, you know, and uh, it turned out to be a smart move because things got really, really crazy. I just have to keep hoping that we can bring the theater back. You know, they're talking about spring of 2021 to sort of relight Broadway and sort of reopen all of that. And I just, uh, I have to continue to be, try to be optimistic about that because it's such an important part of what makes the city work. Um, It's an economic engine, you know what I mean? And I really, I, I want all 100% of my union to be working again, you know what I'm saying? And um, absolutely. But most of it really is staying close to home, watching out for the people that I love, you know, and um, for for my kids, this is an extremely difficult time because this summer there were no summer jobs. Right. The pool didn't open. The stores don't need um, help. Kids are competing with adults, you know, that sort of stuff. So I've basically been trying to stay home and hold on because this has been a huge psychological test for everyone. Yeah. And TV just didn't come into it. <laughs> For the last uh, couple of months, I'm uh, an admirer of the of TV and film, but uh, for some reason, you know, I just can't flick the switch, you know, like I used to. Right. There are some of my fellow nominees I haven't seen their work this year, you know, and I have to do a little more research about that just to stay current. But shamefully, I confess, I know nothing about what's happening uh, on television. Do you think you'll watch the Emmys, the first ever virtual Emmys this year? Well, I continue to want to be optimistic about it, but it's a live event, you know, and it depends upon uh, depends upon the excitement of live events. You know, we have uh, terrific producers who are trying to, you know, really jazz it up. And I'm going to try to do my part, too. But but it is a live event. And I think we're going to miss that. And um, let's find out, you know, what we can do in the in its stead. It's different without a live audience, the crowds, the affirmation. Right. That comes with that. Um, So we'll see what happens on uh, September the 20th at the at the Emmys. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and it was great talking to you. I'm a big fan of the show and was thrilled to see your name in the nominations uh, once again. Much deserved. Right. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me this afternoon. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. so great chatting with Andre Brower. And of course, as a Brooklyn Nine-Nine diehard, I had to ask about Cheddar. Cheddar! <laughs> it was great to learn some behind-the-scenes tidbits about him slash her, May Stewart, the original Cheddar. Rest in peace. <laughs> and now, another funny, funny man. This time, it's Keenan Thompson from Saturday Night Live. Let's listen in. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. First of all, congratulations on your Emmy nomination. That is part of the reason that we are here today. This is your fourth Emmy nomination. Of course, you already have one. Oh, my goodness. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I, I won one with my, my dear brother, Chris Red, and our good buddy, uh, Will Steven, who wrote it with us, and our music director, Eli Brugeman. Um, and we all four got to go up there together and, and celebrate that moment together. So, yeah, that was that was amazing. And so this one, though, uh, is one that you have been nominated before for Supporting Actor, which many of your colleagues on SNL uh, and a lot of the guests this year, too, got nominations. Is it sort of even in this weird time that we're living in, exciting that morning to sort of call up everybody and be like, we got nominated? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, it was very exciting. Like, I'm not a big self-promoter, but that was a, a proud moment, you know, so it made me feel good to, like, text the fam and be like, yo, check out this article, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, your boy is having a moment right now, so. Yeah, it's a good moment. And so it doesn't bother you at all that Brad Pitt can show up for five minutes and also get an Emmy nomination? <laughs> it's all good. You know what I mean? It was it was an incredible moment. And it's, it's Brad Pitt. And, you know, we've been trying to get him on the show for a long time, I'm sure. So, you know, I'm just they were probably giving the Emmy to the struggle of having to get him. So <laughs> exactly. And the Emmy for the struggle is real goes to. <laughs> And I want to talk about the pandemic shows. I talked to Sam J the other day, who is so great. She's the best. And has a fantastic special out uh, right, right now on Netflix. 3 a.m. on Netflix. Go and, go and watch it. She is so funny. And I asked her about the pandemic shows because I am a huge SNL nerd. And when you guys came back, finally, during this time, I, I felt a sense of relief. Mm. And in talking to other people who love the show, too, I, I got this sense that people were really grateful that you guys came back during that time. Did you did you get that sense sort of in this disconnected world? Oh, without question. That was like the main thing that people were saying, you know, like, thank you so much for doing it. We just need some kind of normalcy in these crazy times. And we just love you guys. And there was so much outpouring of, of love and, and uh, gratitude. You know what I mean? Like people yeah. were just so thankful. So. That felt great. And how difficult was that, though? Obviously, it got you guys started to refine how you did it. But that first show, was it just a real talking about the struggle? <laughs> I mean, was that struggle real? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And thank God, you know, we have young people involved in the show now as far as like the culture of the show. So a lot of people were a lot quicker to be able to put up videos from home because they do that a lot, I guess, for like Instagram mm -hmm. or social media or whatever. 
So with probably 80%, 90% of people, you know, knowing how to do that stuff from home or whatever, it was you know easy for everybody else to jump in with both feet. Like for me, it was newish because I've always kind of just kept my work to the studio or to real sets and stuff like that. I kept my home life kind of to myself. So it was interesting, you know, to open that up and have to do all that work and make sure that I'm getting the shots right or I'm, I'm getting my angles right or I'm actually performing right. But what I liked about the experience was that each week got better. You know, the next week right. they sent us more equipment. You know, we got like green screens and stuff so we could do music videos. And, you know, it just started escalating. And uh, Well, by the end, you were doing these shots from the ceiling. That's what I'm saying. By the, by the end, we were doing whatever we wanted. Yeah, that was, you know, Big Poppy was, you know, number two, which is why I felt like it stepped up for me, like, tremendously. I did What's Up With That and... Big Poppy and OJ, like all in the same episode, you know. Okay, we need to talk about OJ for a second. <laughs> Do we? <laughs> Just for one second, yeah. because I don't remember what I said that night, but I tweeted something like, "I cannot believe that was." It took a dark turn. Oh man! <laughs> and it was so funny. Was there even a tiny part of you that's like, "Is this cool?" <laughs> There's nothing cool about it. You know what I'm saying? But it's. We can have to try to laugh at it because it's our reality that there's an O.J. Simpson in the world. You know what I mean? And he's walking around and doing stuff. So that bit was too good, though. That yeah. whole like, but some other illness that wasn't as important is going to get me later. Right. Shout out to Michael <laughs> Che, man. That dude is brilliant. That dude is absolutely brilliant. It was a good bit. And since Thank I'm from you. Boston, we have to talk about Big Poppy for a moment. Uh-huh. And I'm curious if have, you must have heard from David Ortiz at this point about oh, this yeah. impression. He must love it, right? We're, we're Instagram friends now. It took me a while to get on Instagram or whatever and, and figure out that you have to kind of look through who's following you because you never know who's in that list. You know, you're not going to know everybody. And he had been in there for a while. So I was like, oh, snap, let me hit him, follow him back and blah, blah, blah. And now I get to like look at his life and stuff like that. But you know, I have yet to meet him in person, but, you know, we've exchanged a couple of messages like, you know, mad love, bro. You know what I'm saying? Mofongo. It's, it's all love. <laughs> it's so great, though. He's the biggest hearted man. I'm, I would love to be a fly on the wall when you guys meet. He's going to love you. Yeah, those are the best people, man. Big giants with big hearts. You know, they're, they're the sweetest people in the world because... I guess they have a lot of the weight of the world on them from a very young age, probably. You know, when you're big like that early, you know, you have a lot of attention on you. And then you got to find a little nerdy friend to kind of protect. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Throughout high school and stuff like that. So, that, you know, there's a lot of responsibility in those big guys. I love that you just made a movie out of that. Now it's a buddy comedy. He's yeah, got a absolutely. nerdy friend. Yeah. <laughs> Are you the nerdy friend? <laughs> yeah, you know it. I'm the little nerdy friend who can't fight and we become best friends. And he gets signed to a professional baseball life. And I'm right there with him. The guy who's kind of cut out all of the photos because they're waist high. Exactly. (laughs) You're too small. But that's so funny because the thing that you're describing, I mean, I think that that could easily be said about you. I mean, you started very young and had pressure on yourself. And perhaps it is not the same pressure of the world stage of like Major League Baseball. But it's not insignificant either. I mean, it's viewership. It's ratings. It's. And, and going through this process from a child. And when you talk about you're so happy that there are these young people at SNL, you used to be the young person at SNL. That's what I'm saying. I used to be the young person surrounded by, you know, the elderly. <laughs> 
No, but I mean, they were they were young at heart, but to me, they were all grownups. You know what I mean? Like they were mm. all, I guess, in the rhythm, and and the rhythm goes so fast there that it's very overwhelming in your first couple few weeks. So I've, I feel mm. very young and immature. But I give Nickelodeon their credit for protecting us from you know the business side or the headaches of or yeah. the pressures of you know what I mean we were able to kind of just play and I was always curious about it so I would ask my questions like you know what's it like to you know what does it cost to do this or that and the other but as far as like pressure is concerned kind of the only pressure was making the audience in front of us laugh you know because it was basically right. an audience of our peers so you know we're trying to entertain like kids and trying to look cool and you know this that and the other so those were like you know easy kind of pressures to to deal with and SNL was the same kind of thing they're very protective of their cast so the cast kind of lives in a little bit of a bubble and you know you can poke your head out and ask whatever questions you want but Lauren is very protective of us so I've been very blessed to go from two very protective households basically yeah it's amazing and it's interesting I mean that you say that about trying to look cool, because what I would say for you and for a lot of my favorite actors and comedians is that you're not afraid to not look cool. That's what makes <laughs> it funny, that the, there's very little vanity in what you guys do. And I mean, maybe in a lot of times, a lot of people, yourself included, are sort of just naturally attractive. So like, you don't have to have that vanity. Oh, like it might be a little harder for less attractive people. Excuse <laughs> me. Thank but you very much. You're welcome. But I think you understand what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, that absolutely. like sort of looking the fool is part of what makes it so compelling. Yeah. I mean, my biggest heroes were always looking the fool, you know, and it started with Cosby, of course, because he was, you know, the cleanest and the, the first one that I was able to really watch. But at some point, you know, he would fall down the stairs in the Cosby show or do right. something, you know, that's not so put together as, you know, Dr. Huxtable or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Martin, of course, was just over the moon with his physicality. Yeah. And then you have like I, when I was able to like look back at Richard Pryor and, you know, in his Long Beach special, you know, like he really hitting the floor with that heart attack and like yeah. learning how to really perform things out to where it's too real not to laugh. You know what I mean? Yeah. So perfect, perfectly put. Too real not to laugh. That was prior in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, the heart attack, the free base, the oh my god, on the floor, like everything. Shooting a tire and the, the sound a tire makes. You know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just, just talking about Mudbone. I mean, yeah. like there's this great lineage yeah. that comes before you of people being totally real, but not afraid to like look the fool in service of something. That's exactly right. In service of the reflection of life, which I think is what the arts is for. And I'm a big fan of that. And anybody who does that completely outside of themselves, like you can't tell where the real Jim Carrey is at any point, I don't think. You know what I mean? And I find that fascinating. And I, I admire those guys. But clearly as somebody, I mean, all that seems like it's probably the ideal training for SNL. The only uh, aspect that isn't there is the live aspect, right? Which is great as a kid that you're sort of preparing. Then you come to the major leagues, basically. And then 17 years later, you're still here, the longest tenured member, the, you know, four Emmy nominations. And how much of you is able to stand back from that and be like, wow, that's something. And it's not just fear of going out and doing something else. It's because I'm committed to this. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't pay enough attention. Like, I, sh- I feel like I should, you know, like the, f- 
when I first heard it was like my fourth nomination, I'm like, hold up. You know what I'm saying? Like, what was the other two? Like, I only know the one from when we won. <laughs> and then this one right here, there was two other ones. It's one of those things where I try not to directly pay attention to what's obviously going to stress me out. You know, that's another thing that I, I tried to take into my work at SNL, too. You know, I try to make it fun, have a good time mm-hmm. and try not to think about the fact that, yeah, it's, we're live across the U.S. You know what I mean? We're live right. across the greatest nation. We're, we're live across this and that and the other. And then obviously the reach is going to stretch around the world eventually. And then we're also going to get highly criticized tomorrow. You know what right. I'm saying? And it's like. If you focus on all of that, you, you're going to take yourself out of the fact that Tom Hanks is servicing your sketch or Dave yes. Chappelle is doing a monologue right now. And it's incredible. Or Eddie Murphy's back or Adam Sandler's back. You know what I mean? And I just I try to be in the moment and enjoy the moment for what we're there to do, which is service this great writing. So. Right. I want to ask about a specific moment that you bring up, Eddie and Chappelle, because I have to tell you, I literally was in tears. Chappelle, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Tracy Morgan, Kean Thompson, all across the stage. I'm like getting choked up talking about it now. It was so moving. And I can't imagine what that moment was like for you. Can you describe that feeling of the five of you across that stage? I mean, you're giving me chills right now because I remember like how I knew how special that moment was going to be when they announced it over the summer. It didn't have nothing to do with me. I just knew how great that week was going to be, mm. you know, and he's just one of the like true American heroes. And especially from that show and the kind of the last to prodigal son return type of thing, because, mm-hmm. you know, Adam did it. And it was those two guys, you know, that hadn't been back yet. And Adam did an incredible job and we went on summer break not knowing anything. And then they announced that shit over the summer. I'm like, man, Lauren is a gangster. Yeah. And, and then to put it on the Christmas show, knowing what how special New York is at Christmas and it's our going away gift to everybody is the last show of the season. Just yeah. so much. So when Che was writing a monologue and he put me in that, I'm like, man, I will constant like I would if I could tap Michael Che on my arm I would do it you know what I'm saying because mm-hmm. the dude he didn't have to include me in that but he's always so righteous to never not think that that would be a cool moment for somebody you know what I'm saying or yeah. a, des- a deserving moment or any of that yeah. you know what I'm saying like they totally. would have been just fine and we would have been just fine with no cast members in it and just those dudes having a great time and you know, we got a great show sticking around and then we do our thing. You know what I'm saying? That would have yeah. been easy. You know, I have no problem with that. But the fact that he thought to include me and the fact that they all welcomed it and nobody had an issue. And it was just for a quick thing, which got a laugh, which is always my only point right. of ever going out on television. I'm going to head towards a laugh. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Whether I get it quick or I get it eventually, hopefully quick is better. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my only reason for being on that show when I'm on camera is to be headed towards something funny. And and that's what happened. And, you know, it's a historic moment. And I, I, I just I can only imagine like how it feels for like my father. You know what I mean? Because yes. I used to watch I used to watch him watch, you know, James Brown in the hot tub and all that stuff, like with not without him knowing, you know, I'm peeking out from my bedroom, watching him and just laughing and just, you know, 
being able to be free for an hour and a half and, and laugh like that, you know, and that, that feeling that it, it was given him that I witnessed, you know, so. Yeah, no, I talked to my dad about it afterwards because my dad, my dad's a big SNL guy too. And it was just, yes, it was real funny, but it was real poignant too. I mean, I was just so moved that I took a screenshot of the screen. (laughs) I was just like, this means something. And I just, it makes me want to talk about Red, who I love so much and who I feel like has really come into his own on the show. And I'm curious if you have sort of like been helping him along because he's so funny. Man, Chris is a superhero. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen, you know, in my tenure there, a couple few people come through there. But, you know, we didn't really come. Like, me, Finesse, JB, Jay Farrell, you know, like, Mm -hmm. none of us came from an improv house, you know? Right. And had, like, very specific, similar experience training to what that show is. To witness him coming from that and, and jumping into the show with Bofi is a totally different thing, you know, than what we did. I mean, he won an Emmy in his first year. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. It's, it's no joke with that dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's ready to do it and he's great. And as a person, he's even that much better. You know what I mean? He's his brother's keeper. Proud son. You know what I mean? Very proud Chicagoan. And an incredible person to work with. You know what I mean? He's, you know, probably a lot of his friends' best friends because he's that guy. He's that guy. Yeah. And it just comes across on screen. And he is so versatile. It's funny when he came on that he can be the straight man. He can be the funny guy. He can, he can code do switch. Like, I feel like I'm almost in his way. You know what I mean? But <laughs> he, I'm not because we, you know. I, I help to do things that he comes up with and he helps to do things that I come up with. You know what I mean? It's not like we're both button heads over the same part at all. Like he got Cory Booker. He's got, you know, whoever else he wants to do. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm saying? And like, you know, it's I do who I do. If there is a way where I'm like, you know, do I need to do this part? Like, can like Chris do this if he doesn't have anything in the show? But they always do right. that anyway. You know, if people will have heavy shows and somebody has a lighter show, they'll figure out ways to interplay characters if they can, because everybody needs that, that shine time, you know, everybody's getting paid. So we might as well work them. (laughs) Ah, Absolutely. And I just remember when you guys started them Trumps, Oh my God. (laughs) That like that you could even in the last couple of years with Ego and with Chris and with Shay and you, that you've been able to do these sketches. I mean, those bits where you do the round Robin talking about politics and then it comes back to the black family and they're just right. like, Oh yeah, that's not going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the, the fantasy and the real is always the, the good formula, you know, but that there's enough people now that you could have a family of black people on SNL. It's, it's fantastic. Amazing. And it, you know, it's not like they're in the cast, you know, it's not like we have to pull a writer or a producer in or, you know, a crew person that you never get to see. Like these are all, cast members that you can get to know and love and, and grow with, you know, and that's why we miss Leslie so much and stuff like that. You know, yeah. she was, you know, a, a pivotal part of anything that she ever touched. So her presence is definitely felt when it's not there. Yeah. Well, you got to pull Sam J on screen next season. I feel like, like she's about to join the cast. Like if I know anything about that show, like, you know, I'm, I would assume that she was about to join. I would mock my word. Don't be surprised if you see that headline coming. Because my girl is funny. Now, I want to talk about a couple of things because I, I will not get out of this alive with all my friends if I don't ask you about two things specifically. First of all, let us talk about Black Jeopardy for a moment. 
<laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and how every single time, no matter who the guest that you're putting in, I mean, Jamie Foxx and Durbo McDillard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hanks and his MAGA hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Chadwick Boseman as Black Wow, Panther. Jamie Foxx. Yeah. <laughs> Going back, you know, if we were talking about them Trumps, you know, shout out to Brian Tucker, who I write a lot with. You know, we wrote What's Up With That together, you know, and uh, lots of other things, Family Feud and Black Jeopardy. They do Black Jeopardy. He, whenever him and Michael Che, like, team up on things, that bullseye is, is pretty strong. So Black Jeopardy is, you know, their baby and it's really, you know, Tucker's baby, but they go hand in hand as far as, like, walking the line is concerned and mm-hmm. kind of trying to know where the line is and where we can push it. And I think they've done an incredible job. Like speaking of escalating, I feel like it escalated, you know, each time we did that sketch too, because it was, you know, we had to try to do something different from the last time, number one, just to make the sketch better. But it was just different opportunities. Like by the time Tom Hanks came and it was like the whole MAGA thing, but we still found common common ground. Right. That was like, you know, the, the top of the mountain as far as we knew. And then Chadwick came the next week and we were like, oh shit. Black people are having probably the biggest action superhero moment in history right now. You know what I'm saying? How are we going to, we can't just like go downwards with this. Like this is a big moment for him, for black people, for black jeopardy, for everything black. So we found the common ground of, you know, Africans and African-Americans being quite different. Right. The raisins and potato salad. Exactly. (laughs) But we can find that common ground and keep your bland ass potato salad to yourself. Exactly. And it just when you introduced what had happened was like oh, I was all the done. categories is always my favorite. The categories is always my favorite. He fit into He fit into Absolutely. But what had happened was that just right. it it did me in. And, and then and as always, white people. Exactly. And as always. But then I have to, you have now said twice in the course of this conversation, what's up with that? And we've been having this debate for years now. What's up with that? Or what up with that? On the title, I think it's what's up with that, right? I think it's what up with that. At the beginning, it was what up with that? What up with that? And then it became what's up with that? Right. Yeah. All right. So you don't have a preference. No, that's just this cyclone of us, you know, doing 50 million things at the same time, basically. And nobody being overly specific on like, is it what's up or what up with that? It's like, all right, it's your sketch, so you have control over it. But then I'm thinking about 50 other million things. So I, I think while I'm singing it, I go back and forth between like, what up with that and what's up with that? Well, I say what's up with that in the song and then... In the intro, when I speak it, I'm like, welcome to what up with that, maybe? Like, I so think that's right. It might have been kind of all over the place. Just the fog you have because of the fear. You know what I mean? You kind of just sink into the character and go away from things that might be like, oh, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Because if it feels right, you're just going to ignore little shit, I guess. Right. You're just going to go with it. I, have you seen Ted Lasso yet today? Because his new show, Ted Lasso. No, I want to see it. It's fantastic. And he does the running, man. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, that's what's up with that. Yeah, he can dance. He, I mean, you know, God bless him for contributing like that to that sketch. That was one thing I knew when it was going to be special when everybody was sweating harder than I was after rehearsal. Right. I was like, yo, this is amazing. And, it, you know, I've always been 
big on the whole ensemble mentality, man, because if people are giving to something else and they don't even have lines and they're sweating, like that's love. So I like that. That's actual commitment. And then finally, speaking of the ensemble, these musical episodes with Mulaney. <laughs> Incredible. These, how long do these, I mean, this must be the hardest thing that you guys do. All these moving parts, lyrics, music. It, that, that last one definitely was a long one. LaGuardia Airport? Yeah, that was a long one because I guess it was just a lot of moving parts, but a lot of angles. And then the jokes were kind of changing constantly. So it was causing things and guest stars, Jake Gyllenhaal came in and crushed it. But then Bodega Cat was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and the diner, Les Mis, yeah, we were the lobster. The Les Mis diner, that was incredible. It was just so incredible, the story that it, you know, it just got cut, never was thought about. I totally remember even going to the rehearsal because I wasn't, you know, affluent in theater growing up. So I had never seen Les Mis. So I remember mm-hmm. being in the music rehearsal, like, what is this? And how does it go? And why does it not make musical sense that much? It's just all over the place. <laughs> and so I thoroughly remember that week. And then we read it at the, I thought it went okay at the table, but you know, I guess the jokes just were a little strange and it didn't just make a super splash. So, you know, it fell off the table. And I didn't think about it for years. And then they brought it back and I still, I was like, wait a second, did we do after we were like, it was picked and I was like, oh, snap, that's right. We did this and it's great. And why was it not great? Like we couldn't figure right. out why it wasn't great, but it, I guess it just wasn't its time yet. So Yes, it was ahead of its time. But I'm telling you, what sells it from the very beginning is Red being like, you're going to order lobster and a diaper. Uh, are you out of your rabbit mind? <laughs> and that joke continues. You order a sushi at LaGuardia? <laughs> What is wrong with you? All right. Well, we are about to run out of time. So I just want to ask you, you were about to do your own show and uh, Keenan show, which I just recently learned that Don Johnson is going to be in. What is what character is Don Johnson playing? He's playing my father-in-law. He's taking Andy Garcia's role because Andy had to move on to other things. That's a pivot. It's a a pivot. It's a it's a definite pivot. It's kind of still in the same lane as, you know, outside of my culture type father-in-law. So right. it's going to be interesting. But, you know, my daughter's staying the same. And then we added Chris is playing my brother, Chris Red. Chris Red. But Chris Rock That's is right. producing, right? I believe she's still in the mix. Yes. Okay. I mean, he, was, he directed the pilot and then he got busy with Fargo. So I have. Right. So wait, Red's in, in the show, too? Chris Red is in the show. I believe. Uh. There's going to be other wonderful names that I'm not exactly sure who I can say is involved yet. Right. I don't know if their deals are done, but gotcha. cast is, is coming around. And so we're looking at 2021 for this. I think so. I mean, I'm supposed to start shooting, I guess, after the election. They want us to focus on the election at SNL first. Right. And then how are you going to balance doing these two things at once? And did you consider giving up SNL? Uh, I will. I will never consider that. <laughs> uh, they're gonna have to throw me out, kicking and screaming. No, but I feel like since I'm so close to twenty, that might be a good stopping point. So I'm kind of right. just focused on that at the moment. And then, as far as the back and forth, that's for NBC to figure out. But you're shooting in New York. It's shooting in LA. Oh no! All right. So you got some yeah. flights in front of you. Hopefully, once things get a little better out there in the real world. But let's yeah. not. 
think about that just yet. But how are you going to do the Emmys? Are you going to get all dressed up in front of your laptop? Are you going to wear your pajamas? Like, what's the Emmy night plan? I got. I feel like I got to show some respect, you know? Like, I don't want to do a half tux, you know, and then I'm sitting in my boxers just to be funny type <laughs> situation. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm going to get dressed up, you know, maybe have a cocktail or something like that. And, uh, you know, watch it. I like it. Maybe I'll just airplay it on my TV so I don't have to feel like I'm in such a, a wormhole of technology. But, yeah, you know, I, I would like to maybe get dressed up and, you know, maybe my wife would dress up with me and we'll just have a night. Oh, I like that. And is SNL like the uh, sitcoms? Do you pick specific episodes to submit for consideration? Yes. Do you know what show it was? For myself, I picked the uh, second quarantine show, which was... Big Poppy and What's Up With That and OJ. That's why you got a nomination, brother. (laughs) That was a good one. It hit home a little bit. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I cannot thank you enough for spending some time with us today. It was a real treat. My pleasure. It's nice to see people. (laughs) I know. Reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out. We're still here. Exactly. We're still here. We're still together. Stay inside, wear a mask, and wash your hands. Big time. Big time. Take care and good luck on Emmy night. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. Don't let it be another 17 in between this. I will not. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. So hopefully you all enjoyed a little bit of that chat with Kenan about Black Jeopardy and what or what's up with that. You know, plug in your own thing if you want. And this is your reminder, since we talked about Ted Lasso, and I know that Kristen is also a fan, check out Ted Lasso yes. on Apple+. Plus. And next week, we would love for you to come back for a bonus episode of The Awardist, where I had a chat with five fantastically funny women who all write for late night shows, all of the shows who have been nominated. Uh, and it was really lively and raucous and it got kind of racy yeah, at times. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I definitely think it's worth listening into. So we have the great Robin Thede from A Black Lady Sketch yes. Show. Amber Ruffin, who writes for Late Night with Seth Meyers and has her own show coming up. And Ex Mayo, who works for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And Kristen Bartlett is our guest from Sambi. And those ladies got going and I just stood back. It was pretty fantastic. And I think it will be a good lesson for y'all. So please stay tuned for that. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join the conversation, tweet at us. I'm at Kristen G. Baldwin, and you can find Sarah at Sarah A. Rodman. The Awardist isn't just a podcast. You can also find us across EW platforms on EW.com, in the magazine, and on social media, too. So if you want to binge more of The Awardist, you know where to find it. Until then, we'll be on the couch. The Awardist is produced by EW in partnership with Pod People. 